You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. It is a beautiful Thursday morning. It's okay. I mean, it's not like sweltering hot, even though I already put my hair up this morning. So that's that. You're right. The weather is decent. It is really hot in the booth that we recorded, though. We're always like sweating by the end of these (laughs) things. Yeah. But it's worth it for you guys. It is. We like to provide. I think, well, they've taped off the air vent in here, probably because it makes noise. But that explains why it's so goddamn hot. And you have these lights on that are just glaring yeah, into my eyes. I'm like, do we need these lights? I don't know why they need such bright lights for a VO booth. Like, I know. you're not filming anything. It's just, we could be in darkness in here. We could. Let's see. We're Ooh. in darkness. Ooh. I, I wish you guys could see how we looked. We're yeah. in the dark. I can't really look you in the eye. I can, but. We can, yeah. but. I feel just, like we're at a sleepover. Yeah. But there is something about being able to see your face when I'm telling my story. <gasps> Fine. The lights are back on. Okay. I wonder if, um, anyway, this is what does it sound brighter in here? <laughs> Can you tell when the lights are on versus off? Um, I'm Grace, by the way. Yeah, and uh, I'm Chelsea. Hi. And we're the Good Evening Girls, and this is yeah. Two Girls, One Crossword. Two Girls, One Crossword. But we have multiple crosswords that we do now. Yeah, well, we work on... Actually, yeah, sometimes we do do, like, three crosswords at the same time because there's just so many crosswords to do. Obviously, we want to keep doing the New York Times because even though everyone hates it, that seems to be, like... The thing that keeps us all together. Yeah, but then there's so many cool indie crosswords out there. So mm-hmm. if you don't like the New York Times, maybe another crossword will tickle your fancy. Yes, that's true. And we've we've gotten a lot of people at work onto these new crosswords. Not that they're, like, subscribing necessarily, but... They do, they do them with us. They're hard, though. Sometimes they're really hard. Yeah, because you get so used to the way New New York Times, like, freight or Will Shorts, if you will, phrases things. And, like, you know the type of shit he likes to put in there. Yeah. So it's about getting used to. And I think once we start doing them more regularly and start doing specific constructors more regularly, maybe we'll yeah get better. I mean, we're getting better with every day. Yeah. We're not that hard on ourselves, okay? No. We do our not. best. We like to have fun here. <laughs> do, do you, speaking of fun, do you have hits and shits? I actually. I know a, you had a bunch, so I don't have any. I'll just I have let you corrections take it away. corners. Oh, okay. It's not really corrections corners, but last week Grace and I stumbled over a couple medical things, um, <laughs> where we were nervous about being incorrect. Oh, tuberculosis. <laughs> tuberculosis and um, obstructed bowels being the two, and so I wanted to just like highlight those things. And All right, give you a starting bit off <laughs> with tuberculosis and obstructed bowels. I'm going to start with obstructed bowels. It's a gastrointestinal condition in which digested material is prevented from passing normally through the bowel, as the name suggests. Mm, yes. Yum. Mm. Um, sorry. <laughs> and treatment includes avoiding solid foods, using pain and nausea medication, and close monitoring. Um, and then depending on how severe it is, you might have to have surgery to get it unobstructed. unobstructed. Nice. Um, Okay, so tuberculosis is a potentially serious infectious bacterial disease that mainly affects the lungs. So the bacteria, like, attacks the lungs. Mm -hmm. Um, Treatment isn't always required, depending on if it's, like, latent or active. Um, But if you have active symptoms, it will require a long course of treatment involving multiple antibiotics. um, And prevention and control uh, relies on vaccination of infants and detection of the disease. Um, early on if you have the active case. Um, so I looked up some like statistics because we weren't sure if like you could still get tuberculosis because yeah. we're dumb. But so last year, 10 million people fell ill from TB. Oh, no. And 1.6 million people died. That's 4,384 deaths daily. Whoa. Wow. Does it say where? So it doesn't, it didn't break it down like country by country, but I did find that 9,105 cases of tuberculosis were reported in the U.S. in 2017, although I couldn't find, like, the death rates in the U.S. So that's to say approximately 10,000 cases in 2017 in the United States out of 1.6 billion deaths and 10 million cases worldwide. Yeah. Yeah, 9,000 isn't that. I mean, obviously, it's a lot, but not that much of the U.S. population, but still. Yeah. Well. Wowzers. And um, if you're interested in learning more about TB, visit tballiance.org. This episode brought to you by <laughs> tballiance.org. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I I mean, whatever. None of these diseases are fully eradicated, but I just wondered how common it was still. Because, yeah. I mean, I feel like I personally don't know anyone who has had tuberculosis. Right. La- like, you know, the most famous tuberculosis case I know is like Edgar Allan Poe or something. Or yeah. did he have rabies? <laughs> 
<laughs> Did he have rabies? He got it from the raven. Um, or maybe it was his mom who had TB. I don't. Anyway, I so really, now here we go. I didn't even know that Edgar Allan Poe had TB. Well, that'll be. Our, we'll we'll cover that next. Yeah, next maybe week. next corrections corner I'll have more info. Maybe on we'll that. get Edgar Allan Poe a uh, clue and a crossword, and <gasps> then we can cover it. Yeah, good idea. Um, I actually visited the Edgar Allan Poe house in Philadelphia, and it was a house. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I wanted. I've seen the Halloween costume Edgar Allan Poe, and it's like <laughs> oh, a sexy no. Edgar Allan Poe. For a woman or a guy? A woman was dressed. Why couldn't a guy just have the sexy Edgar Allan Poe costume? Well, no, it wasn't like made. It wasn't being sold in stores. A girl did like made it herself. Oh, and it was oh, really oh. funny. Okay. I don't. I feel like that being st- sold in stores may not get that many uh, <laughs> customers. But who knows? Maybe not. I would be like, oh, I, that seems interesting. I, I'm a lit nerd. I love this. Yes. yes. Um. Mm, cool. Yeah. It so, was. It was cute. That's my corrections corner for you. Um, so we'll get into hits and shits. I have a couple. Um, Friday, July 31st, New York Times by Andrew Reese. Um, 36 across, character raised in Rosemary's Baby. And the answer was apostrophe because the apostrophe is raised of all oh. the characters. Which annoyed me. I was thinking, I was like, what's Rosemary's Baby's name? Right, of course, which is what they were trying to do. Um, look up, by the way. And... The thing that frustrated me about this is in the clue, there are three raised characters. There's two um, quotations and one apostrophe, but apostrophe made it in. Anyway, so it should be one character raised in Rosemary's Baby or something. I don't know. Because when you say character raised in Rosemary's Baby, it makes you think the, the only character raised in Rosemary's Baby. I don't know. Maybe I'm just well, wait, reading it. But Rosemary's it. Baby, the title... Only has one, right? Yeah, but it has quotes around it. But yeah, that's because it's a title of a right movie. Anyway, so that was one of it, not necessarily a shit. I guess just I was kind of annoyed when we filled that in. Um, Forty-four down from that same puzzle was modern handbag portmanteau, and the answer was Merce, which oh. I really didn't like. Well, okay, but portmanteau. No, I, I know. Mean, it's, is it's, that not? Because I thought Portmanteau was like a brand name that has like like Band-Aid and Kleenex. No, Portmanteau is when, brands. no, it's when you um, combine two things like brunch is Portmanteau. So like breakfast and lunch. Got it. Yeah. And, What's um, brunch? No, just <laughs> but the, so the reason I didn't like this, it says modern handbag Portmanteau. Have you ever heard anybody say Merce in your life? Yes. Outside of like the early 2000s. Yes. Do people still say that? Well, uh, someone at work who's a guy has, like, a satchel, and he had it on the chair next to me, and then someone else came up and was like, he thought it was mine. He's like, Grace, can I move your bag? And then they were like, no, that sounds so Merce. <laughs> I feel like people use Merce, man purse. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't hate that one. I, I guess I just don't like that, like, we're gendering bags, but whatever. The man purse is a thing. Yeah, I know, but it's just a bag. Should we call women purses worses? Would that right. make you happy? <laughs> no, I think we should just call all the bags bags or purses. But purse does have more of a like feminine connotation than a bag. Sure. But I mean, it's like... Well, a, a purse is also different than a bag. Right. A purse is like a Michael Kors handbag, right? Yeah. But then like you a have... A bag is like... Right. A backpack. But it wasn't or, this guy who had his bag next to you wasn't carrying a Michael Kors handbag designed for a man. It was more of like a, it was like a satchel. Right. It's just like a bag, like a messenger bag, right? Yeah. Which it wasn't a messenger purse. bag. It was like a side. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what the bag was. <laughs> anyway, I just feel like it's, I don't know. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Um, anyway, um, Sunday New York Times, August 2nd, Will Nettiger. Um 34 down was I've never seen a clue like this before so I wasn't sure if this is like a new thing or if people have ever clued like this before but um, 34 down use uh, user of the Twitter handle at Pontifex I've never seen someone use someone's like Twitter handle in a, as a clue before yeah and the answer was Pope so that's like Pope what's his face's um, Twitter handle which I thought was fun wait is that really his yeah Pontifex yeah I don't follow him. What does he even tweet about? God, probably. And Catholic things. Okay, so another 
A hit. This is a hit, everyone. Tuesday, August 6th, New York Times, John Olson, 24 Down, posh neighborhood of London or New York. Anyone? Oh, yeah. What was it? I forget. Are you shitting me? Oh, Chelsea, right. (laughs) It was Chelsea. And even though Grace got a clue in an indie crossword with her... It was actually me. With her. I will take this as a win. I will take this. Not that it's a competition, but it's absolutely a competition. So thank you. And I really like the Chelsea neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Anyway. If I remember correctly, when we were doing that crossword, you were like, Chelsea, but that's not posh. Well, okay. So when I think of Chelsea... As in, like, the neighborhoods, I think of, like, the Chelsea Smile or, like, the like the lower-income areas, like, down by the wharfs in London or, like, the Chelsea Hotel um, in New York City where Sid stabbed Nancy from, you know, like, Sid and Nancy. Um, and so, but, I mean, they are right now posh neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway. Uh, well, I have kind of a, I tweeted about this already. So if you follow us on Twitter, you would know. But in the, uh, when was this? On the Tuesday New York Times by John Olson, which is, now I know all the New York Times, are all the clues are basically done by Will Shorts. He says he changes like half of them. Right. Um, but come on, things aren't so bad. Cheer up. I just feel like Will Shorts is the type to be. Be like, you're depressed? Just smile. Right. <laughs> I mean, exactly. that's, I'm taking like a big leap to go there, but that just made me laugh. Yeah, no, it's like, that is exactly not what I... Or like, when, yeah, when you're complaining about something, someone's like, well... Chin up, cheer up. Like, there's people who have it way worse than you. It's like, it's like I know <laughs> that people are like dying and I shouldn't be complaining about... But that's not what I'm yeah. looking for right now. I'm looking for <laughs> solace and comfort and someone who understands what's going on in my life yeah. anyway. So that's why I tweeted, I would never want to be comforted by Will <laughs> Oh, lordy, lordy. Shall we get into our topic? We should get into the topic. Should we flip flip a Rooney and cheese? Flip the coin, baby. All right. And the virtual flip. It's flipping and we're me. tails. Wow. Grace is here and she is queer and ready to go. All right. Um, so my clue is from The New Yorker, Friday, July 26th by Amy Lucido, who nice. we are like stalking. <laughs> um, we just like, like her clues a lot. So yeah. We tend to post about it. Yeah. But I don't want her to get freaked out by us. Um, anyways, I'm doing 49 down, which is one of seven on the Statue of Liberty's crown. And the <gasps> answer is spikes. Nice. So I'm doing that. That is a great. Don't have to yell. Sorry. That's a great clue. It's just random because sometimes when I'm going through the crosswords, I'm trying to pick something. I'm like, okay, try not to pick one that are that's obviously trivia. Like maybe yeah. pick something that's less trivia I I don't know. Well, I was going to do the... Um, the son of Adam that was born when Adam was like 130 and the answer is Seth by the way and it's Cain and Abel's younger brother so I was gonna <gasps> since Cain and Abel are always in the crossword mm-hmm. Seth I didn't even know that he existed um, I was gonna talk about them but then it's like it's complicated because that story is in like a bunch of different religions like it's mm-hmm. not just in Christianity but I was raised Catholic so I know the story more from there so I was like I can't learn all these other <laughs> yeah. stories and I don't want it to be like super skewed so right and if you want to know Seth was born when Adam was 130 and 30. yeah and Cain and Abel were his older brothers who Cain killed Abel yes Abel Abel if you're Abel yes um anyways that's a quick little <laughs> a quickie for you yeah um, but, but she's not doing that let's talk about the Statue of Liberty baby. I would love to talk about the Statue of Liberty so as you know history is not my strong suit so I'm going to try and keep this interesting so let's go back in time shall we <laughs> we should go back in time we're going to stay back in time for this episode um great <laughs> so buckle up people it's 1865 <sighs> post-civil war what? the American Civil War the abolition of slavery there's two guys in French the legend has it they went out to dinner and then after dinner they had this conversation. And these guys are Edward René de Lebolay, who is um, the president of the French Anti-Slavery Society and a prominent and important political thinker of his time, and Frederick Bartholdi, who's a sculptor. Cool. I don't have friends that are this cool. <laughs> but these guys go out to dinner. I'm guessing they're a few drinks in. They're <laughs> hanging out afterward. And he's like, uh, Lebolay, I'm, th- I'm like butchering these You're French doing names. great. You're yeah. doing really good. Labo Labole? Where is it? That L word. Laboule. Okay. Laboule. Laboule? Uh, Laboule is like, <laughs> he's like, dude, America is kind of cool because they abolished slavery and I want to abolish slavery. We should like get them a present. And then if we do, 
then French people would be like, wow, we all are in this together. We should also abolish slavery. And the sculptor was like, dude, yeah, I could totally see that. Uh, That's exactly yeah. verbatim how the combo went. They were like, you're so smart. <laughs> they were dude, just hyping each I love other you up. so yeah. much. I told you you had great ideas. I told you this. And Lebele said, dude, if a monument should rise in the United States as a memorial to their independence, I should think it only natural if it were built by a united effort, a common work of both our nations. And dude. Bartoldi was like, bruh, I totally agree with that. But I have other things going on right now. <gasps> He's like, all these other people are asking me to do projects for them. A lighthouse in Egypt. Like, I can't really commit to this right now. Wow. And he is he is putting up boundaries. He's yeah. establishing boundaries for and himself. And Labolet was like, okay, I get it. Like, you're doing other things. So Bartholdi went on and was trying to do other things. And then none of it went through because he, he did, like, plans for this um, lighthouse in Egypt. And they were like dude, that's, like, way too big and too expensive, <laughs> and we're not doing that. And they went with, like, another designer who designed Ooh, something that was a little aww. more, yeah. But whatever. He he tried really hard. Yeah, he got his his day in the sun, nice. if you will. And I will. Um, this was also during the repressive regime of Napoleon III. So it was kind of hard for, like, artists to, you know, really get out there. But then the year's 1875, years later, the Franco-Prussian War and or it was Franco-Prussian War. It was also delaying the project because they were like in war. And <laughs> yeah. he was like, I don't have time to be building these like freaking statues. <laughs> but finally, the war ended and Napoleon III was deposed and Bartholdi could get down to business. That's Let's what I have written in my notes. <laughs> the year is 1871 and the sculptor, he's going to the U.S. anyways. And he's like, dude, while I'm there, I'm going to like bring a letter signed by my friend Labolet and we're going to explain what we want to do. And so he goes to the U.S. and he sees Bed- Bedloe Island, which is like the island that the statue is now called Liberty Island. And he's like, dude, that island would be perfect for the statue because all these like immigrant ships come by it and it could be welcoming people to the United States. Wow, these people really are having good ideas. Yeah. And uh, Ulysses Grant was like, yeah, dude, you could probably get that land. Like, I don't know, it could happen. So that kind of got the ball rolling. Yes. So he started making designs. And he wanted to do a woman. And there were two women that he could choose from that he could, like, kind of uh, model it after. So there was Columbia, who you see in Columbia pictures. Right. Um, She is the personification of the United States. So this was, like, the U.K. and France have women, too. Britannia is the U.K. girl and Marianne is the French girl. Um, And then there's also Liberty. Liberty is based on the Greek goddess of freedom, Libertas, and she Liberty is on most American coins at the time, and she's also on the top of Thomas Crawford's Statue of Freedom, which is on top of the United States Capitol building. Nice. Um, she's also on the Great Seal of France hmm. at the time. So it made sense for them to do Lady Liberty as the statue. <gasps> Could you Liberty. imagine if it was Lady Columbia? Yeah. No. I kind of like her because she seems cool, but... Lady Liberty. I like Lady Liberty. I like them both. Um, Okay, so there were other depictions of Lady Liberty at the time where she's, like, leading revolutions and she's, like, you know, half naked and, and like, maybe more violent. And they were like, no, we are going to make her fully clothed and very peaceful. Boring. I know. Well, there was, like, a famous painting, I guess, with her in it. um, And she's, like, like, barely clothed and she's leading the revolution. And Laboulet did not agree. It was like the French Revolution. And he like didn't like that painting because he was, I don't know, this is like history stuff. <laughs> they were like, no, <laughs> we don't want her to look like that. Like we're going to have a different, like she's not representing like the French Revolution. She's something else. Okay. Um, okay. And then she also originally was going to wear a pileus, which is a cap that was given to emancipated slaves in ancient Rome. It kind of looks like a bucket hat. <laughs> nice. Um, but like. Helmeted E. But Jefferson Davis, who was a Secretary of War at the time and who later became the future president of the, or who was a future president of the Confederate States of America, (gasps) was worried that this hat would be seen as an abolitionist symbol and he wanted them to use a helmet instead. So she could have been wearing a freaking helmet. Could you imagine? And then could you imagine what it would be like today if Lady Liberty had a freaking helmet on? They wouldn't be able to sell the spikes, the foam spikes. They wouldn't, but they would also use it as like a pro war bullshit anyway. Um, so instead, they used a crown with seven spikes, and the seven spikes represent the seven continent and the seven seas. Nice. Universal liberty, maybe, nice. one day. Um, they also put her in a robe called the Stola, S-T-O-L-A, which has been seen. I've seen that in crosswords yes, before. Yes, crosswords. That's like a Roman 
or like a Greek or Roman, I don't know, one of those <laughs> robes. Um, and then they were going to have her holding broken chains because it was the end of slavery, but they thought it would be too controversial. So instead, she's stepping over them, which I didn't even realize. She, it's hard to see from the ground that she's right. chains mm-hmm. by her feet. Um, she holds a tabula ansata, which is a Roman tablet with handles, and um, it represents like law, basically. It has a Declaration of Independence date on it in Roman numerals, 7-4-1776. And then she also holds a torch that's 24 carats. Um, and the torch represents progress and enlightenment. And in fact, her full name is Liberty Enlightening the World. Nice. Which I never knew. I thought she was just Lady Liberty or the Statue of Liberty. But nice. it's Liberty Enlightening the World. Cool. It's supposed to be like a example to mm-hmm. the world which we'll get to later. (laughs) Um, The final version of his design was patented in 1879, and the construction began soon after. The design was bigger than any other sculpture in the world at the time. Um, Eventually, Alexandre Gustave Gustave Eiffel, you may know him as the designer of the Eiffel Tower. You may know his name. He actually designed the statue's skeletal framework, framework, and it had to support over 450,000 pounds. Jiminy Christmas. So they were like, we need this guy. <laughs> um, Bring in Eiffel. The, the Statue of Liberty was one of the earliest examples of curtain wall construction, which means that the exterior of the statue is not load-bearing at all. Everything is, like, done by interior framework, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot of, like, modern buildings today are like that when they have, like, completely glass on the outside. Like, mm-hmm. the glass has no structural integrity, really. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, a casing nice. on the outside. So you Statue of Liberty like you know was, a lot about architecture. Well, <laughs> I've been on many architecture tours. My sister and brother-in-law are both architects. Not that they ever talked to me about architecture. But also, one time my friend made me go to this, like, weird architectural... Uh, <laughs> have I told you about this? No. There's, like, a couple buildings that were coming up in Chicago. And the Chicago Architecture Foundation had, like, a... I don't know, like a presentation about them. So he's like, do you want to go to this? And I was like, sure, because I go to crap like that all the time. <laughs> and then they're talking. It's like the architects themselves are talking about building these buildings and like their design and how they came up with the design because the buildings are kind of unique looking. And then they did a Q&A from the audience and someone in the audience asked, uh, can you bring dog? Do you know if they'll allow dogs in the building? Oh my God. <laughs> and the architect was like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't manage the building. I'm just the architect. <laughs> I was like, people don't know how to act. People are so random. (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) Um, Okay. So he also included two interior spiral staircases so that visitors could reach the observation point in the crown. There was also an observation platform in the torch, but since the arm is so narrow, there's just a single ladder in there that's 40 feet long. (laughs) No, thank you. God, oh, F that. Seriously, (laughs) F that to the moon and back. Nope. (laughs) Uh, so France was in charge of making the statue itself, and then they had to ship it over to the U.S. in 350 pieces. Um, and then the pedestal was built in the United States. So they were like, okay, you guys do that, and we'll do this, and then we'll meet at Bedloe Island. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So the statue was made in parts, as you can imagine, and the parts were kind of all, like, as the statue was being made, the parts would just, like, hang out. Like, her head was just in France. And, nice. like, at a, as a... Um, well, I'll get to that later. But the the arm that carried the torch was made in France, and it was sent to the Centennial World Fair in Philadelphia. And um, people would, like, climb up into the torch to look over the fairgrounds. Oh, wow. That's cool. And then it later was sent to Madison Square Garden in New York for several years. It was just there hanging out. And then it eventually went back to France to join the rest of the statue and then came back to the U.S. later. So the torch was, like, all over the place. <laughs> Got to see the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it was... The statue was completely built in France to make sure everything worked. Then they disassembled it, and then they sent it to the United States, and then nice. they reassembled it. Well, so. you got to be sure. I know. And then you wonder when you go to these, like, state fairs, and they're, like, <laughs> they're moving these roller coasters from county to county. So, so you're like, just, who is in charge of putting this together? I know. And Am I going to die yeah. today? Um, okay. So then the United States was responsible for building and funding the pedestal. So the U.S. commissioned Richard Morse Hunt to design the pedestal. Um, he originally wanted to be 114 feet tall, but because of money issues, uh, they were like, no, that's too much. So now it's only 89 feet tall. So it, the Statue of Liberty could have been like, I don't know, like doing math in my <laughs> She's doing math. It's too early. No, it's not. It could have been <laughs> 25 
feet taller than it is. Which isn't... Which actually isn't that big of a deal. <laughs> I mean, the tattoo's yeah. fucking massive as it is. Anyway. Um, a Norwegian immigrant civil, en- civil engineer, Joachim... <laughs> God, I'm sorry. Joachim? Where's, where, are we, where are we at? Joachim Goshen Giver. They have one of those things where the A and, and the, the e. e, like, share a side. <laughs> Help! <laughs> um, so he designed the structural framework of the pedestal, and he worked with drawings and sketches from um, Eiffel to work on that. But it's kind of interesting, I think, that an immigrant civil engineer designed it because Statue of Liberty is right by Ellis Island, which is where a lot of immigrants came in. Right. Um, so, yeah. So... They both got funding for building this through art events, auctions, donations, and public fees. So in France, you could buy a ticket to view the construction at the workshop um, and, like, to see the head that was hanging out in France. You could buy tickets to see that. They also auctioned off silver-plated and terracotta models of the statue. Nice. And then in the U.S., they were having a lot of issues raising money for it. So Joseph Pulitzer of the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) He was (laughs) also— yeah. He's also the publisher of The World, which was a newspaper in New York City. Mm -hmm. And in exchange for monetary donations for the pedestal, he printed donors' names in his newspaper. Nice. This is the United States' first ever crowdfunding campaign. Yo! Bless up! So then in 1885, The World, which is the newspaper, (laughs) announced that $102,000 had been raised from $120,000 donors. 80% of the total had been received in sums of less than $1. Yeah, so everyone came together. Amazing. Um, In 1886, it was finally completed and put together. On Bedloe Island, right? Yes. Nice. So she is made from iron steel and 300 layers of hand-hammered copper. Yes, who is she? She stands at approximately 111 feet tall, like her actual body, not the pedestal. Plus the 89 pedestal feet. Um, her signature sea green color, also known as a patina, is a result of the natural weathering of copper, which that's like probably the one. I feel like I know I knew a couple of facts about Statue of Liberty, and that was one of them. Yeah, right. Um, the base, So you're telling me that she used to be full copper? She was like a bronzy color, but nice. it, she quickly became green, and then people were freaking out, and they were like, we need to paint her. And people were like, no, like the patina actually protects her, and it's not like... Uh, damaging her in any right. way so they just left it um so the base of her pedestal contains a bronze plaque inscribed with a sonnet by american poet emma lazarus and it goes give me your tired your poor your huddled masses yearning to breathe free um bartoldi was going to put floodlights in the torch balcony <laughs> to illuminate it um but then a week before uh, the like dedication which is when they unveiled it the army corps was like uh, no because ships pilots passing the statue would be blinded so instead he cut portholes in the torch um and he covered it in gold leaf and placed the lights inside of them a power plant was installed on the island to light the torch and for other electrical needs so there's a power a whole power plant yeah on now what is called liberty island so during the dedication grover cleveland was a president at the time uh u.s or ulysses grant was like leaving office right before this and he was like kind of told grover like dude i kind of promised them this island so you have to like give it to them and so he did <laughs> um so do you imagine yeah. after all that bullshit and he's like sorry you can't yeah he's like yeah we're gonna find another place for it um so there was a parade through new york city during the dedication and it started at madison square garden which is where wow. the, the torch used to be full circle yeah it went like all around the uh new york city and as the parade passed the new york stock exchange traders through ticker tape from the windows, beginning the New York tradition of ticker tape parades. Oh. Yeah. So it all started with Statue of Liberty. Beautiful. Um, So no members of the general public were allowed on the island during the ceremony. And it was reserved for dignitaries. The only ladies granted access were Boltoldi's wife and De La Seppe, who was the head of the Franco-American Union, his granddaughter. They were the only girls because they were scared that women might be injured in the crush of people. Um, Amazing. This restriction offended area suffragists who chartered a boat and got as close as they could to the island. I love it. That's something we would do. Yeah. (laughs) Be like, hey, suckers, we're here. Hey, losers. You thought you could kick us off. Um, Okay, so 
Shortly after the dedication, the Cleveland Gazette, which was an African-American newspaper, suggested that the statue's torch not be lit until the United States became a free nation in reality. Amen. They, this was in their newspaper. A quote. Liberty enlightening the world indeed. The expression makes us sick. This government is a howling farce. It cannot, or rather does not, protect its citizens within its own borders. Shove the Bartholdi statue torch and all into the ocean until the liberty of this country is such as to make it possible for an inoffensive and industrious colored man to earn a respectable living for himself and family without being Ku Kluxed, perhaps murdered, his daughter and wife outraged, and his property destroyed. The idea of liberty of this country enlightening the world, or even Patagonia, is ridiculous in the extreme. Amen. And kind of, I mean, like, yeah. Let's push her in. Who needs her? (laughs) Well, she's supposedly welcoming, like, people to the country. And, you know. But which ones? I don't need to talk about how ironic that is. Yeah. Especially today. Um, So, yeah, I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, So, she stands for good things, but does she practice what she preaches? I mean, it's not the statue's fault, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) She being the country of the United States. (laughs) Um, okay, so here are some more random facts about Statue of Liberty. I got these from a website called Culture Trip. Um, they have a bunch of interesting, like, historical, cultural facts. Cool. So tickets to the crown or head of the Statue of Liberty are available by advance reservation only. After September 11th, large groups of people are no longer access to access the are no longer allowed to access the crown all at once, and because only a limited number of tickets are available, the crown is booked up for uh, four to six months in advance. Damn. I I went when I was um, very young, and they tried to take me up there, and I hate heights. And I literally think I don't – I got through a little bit of her leg, and I was like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. so I didn't go to the top. Um, Yeah, I've never been to the top. I have been there, and then I actually have a picture of me wearing, like, the foam Mm -hmm. spikes holding um, an ice cream cone posed in front of her that my mom sent me. So maybe we'll post that on our Instagram. Nice. Um, okay. Due to its height, scientists believe the statue has been hit approximate, with approximately 600 bolts of lightning every year since 1886. Whoa. Yeah, which makes sense. She's basically like a giant lightning antenna. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> under the Antiquities Act, United States President Calvin Coolidge designated the Statue of Liberty as a national monument in 1924. So the statue is not cared for by the city of New York, but the National Park Service. Interesting. Yeah. So when the government shuts down because of budgeting disagreements, you can't go see the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, ironic. Um, originally, Bartholdi wanted the exclusive right to sell the statue's image, which mm. would have been great. Because, like, I feel like the Statue of Liberty is so synonymous with New York. It's oh, on all the tourist things. Yeah. But at the dedication, images of Statue of Liberty were made available. So they kind of beat him to the punch. Yeah. Um, despite the mechanical innovations that have arose since the statue was erected, there is still no elevator access from the top of the pedestal or Lady Liberty's feet to the crown platform. There's 377 steps to the top, and the only bathroom is in the lobby. So <laughs> if you go up, you better be beforehand. Yeah. If you bought your tickets four months in advance, <laughs> you got to prep for this. Yeah. Dehydrate just a little bit. Yeah. And then pee right before you go up. Oh, but then you have to go up. Th- I don't know. It's dangerous. You got to drink water if you're exercising that much. Mm. Um, so in 1916, during World War I, a group of German terrorists set off an explosion at the Statue of Liberty. The statue's right arm sustained most of the ultimately minor damage, which cost, cost the U.S. $100,000 to repair, which isn't bad. No. Um, immediately following the attack, the stairs and the statue's torch, torch were closed for safety reasons. To this day, the torch remains closed to the public. So you can't go into the torch right. at all. Yeah. So you can't be climbing that ladder. Ooh, I would never want to anyway. Um and then final fact, groups in Boston and fin- in Boston, Philadelphia originally offered to pay the full cost of the statue's construction and transportation in return for its relocation. Needless to say, New York won that fight, and she stayed in New York. She did not go to Boston mm. or Philly, but she could be in a different city. But now, she never will. Yeah. Um, and that's it. That's the Statue of Liberty. Nice. What a good topic. Yay. Yay. I like that. Um, I guess we'll hop into my topic. Yeah. Are Which is ready? also the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> Which is also the statue. No, um, it is historical, though. So, okay. So my topic comes from the Tuesday New York Times crossword by John Olson. Mm-hmm. Um, five across, co-conspirator with Brutus and Cassius. Ooh, is it Greek? The answer being Roman. It's Roman. Okay. The answer being Casca, C A S C A. 
Um, and so before I hop into this, I have to note that I am not a scholar of Roman history. You're not? I'm this not. Whole time. Can you believe? And also, there is literally so much nonsense that I could talk to you about. I could probably do a whole series on <laughs> this, but I will not. And so this is going to be a gentle dusting of information for you. Just which, enough so that if this an- question comes up in a trivia topic. Yeah, you'll be able to answer it potentially. And also... Um, It is possible that I may misrepresent facts because I don't completely understand the (laughs) sociopolitical dynamic of ancient Rome um, or the Roman Republic. So we've never claimed that we do understand. So don't at me. So keep your expectations low. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to start with who is Casca? Because that was the answer. Um, His full name is Servilius Casca. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he lived from 84 B.C to 42 BC, um, and he is known as being one of the assassins of Julius Caesar. <gasps> I know. Julius Caesar comes up in the crossword so often. I know. Like I know. his final words. Yes. Which well, I never remember because you always know. Yeah, we're going to get there. Um, so Casca and several other senators conspired to kill Julius Caesar and a plan that they carried out on the 15th of March, 44 BC, um, 15th of March being known as the Ides of March. Casca is important to the story mainly because he struck the first blow to Caesar. Um, He hit him in his neck after another senator, Tilius Kimber, uh, distracted Julius Caesar by grabbing his toga. Um, And then (laughs) Casca kind of like fizzles out of history shortly after because he seems to have died probably by suicide um, in the aftermath of the assassin's defeat at the Battle of Philippi. Or Philippi. So basically, after Julius Caesar was killed, um, Julius Caesar's family started a war with the, the Republic of Rome. Mm-hmm. The Republic of Rome lost, and then Julius Caesar's family took control, and we were segued from the Republic of Rome into the Roman Empire. I see. Which I'll talk to you later about. And then Casco was like. Goodbye. I don't like this. Peace out. Yes. So we're going to talk a little bit about the suicide thing. We're going to talk a little bit about the Roman eras. You hold on. So that's basically Casca. Nothing. There's really not that much more exciting information that I have for you here today about Casca. But Mm -hmm. how do you spell his name again? C-A-C-A-S-C-A. So he's all C's. Yes. Um, Okay. So we're going to talk about a little, little bit about Julius Caesar known as Gaius Julius Caesar, who was a populist Roman dictator, politician, military general, and historian. Um, And Julius Caesar played an important role in many things, Mm -hmm. but very importantly in the events that took the Romans from a Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. So the Roman Kingdom, or ancient Rome, was from 735 BC to 509 BC, and they were basically ruled by a monarchy. The Roman Republic replaced that, and that was from 509 B.C. to 27 B.C., which is when the Romans were overseen by a Senate, mm-hmm. and which they held elections each year um, for these positions. Um, and even though, like, because there's, like, elections, people think it was a democracy, it was not. It was an, <clears throat> an oligarchy, which is power in the hands of a very few ruling class. Mm-hmm. Um, And then the Roman Republic was replaced by the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. to 476 A.D. in a period of time where Rome and all of its territories were ruled by emperors or dictators. So Julius Caesar was important from taking the Romans from a republic, so run by a senate, to the empire, which is the emperors. Mm -hmm. Back to scheduled programming. (laughs) (laughs) Caesar was born in 100 B.C. in July. July 12th or 13th, which... So he's a cancer. He's a cancer, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. But that doesn't add up. No. Well, does it? And then he died on the Ides of March, 44 BC. He was 55 years old. Um, So Julius was born into what was called at the time a patrician family, which is a group of ruling class families in ancient Rome. Um, And traditionally, patrician families had more rights than plebeians, like they could hold office, for instance. And it was believed that patrician families could communicate better with Roman gods. And that's why they could hold office and why they were more important than plebeians. Oh, yes. Duh. (laughs) Um, And the the Juli, which is what Caesar's family group was known as, believed themselves to be direct descendants from the goddess Venus. Hmm. Could you imagine having such like a self-entitled 
I am a direct descendant of a goddess. So, oh, you're right. Yeah. Sorry. I forgot. Sorry. My bad. Anyway. So, so yes, I can't imagine. <laughs> Um, so Caesar became the head of the family at 16 years old when his father suddenly died. Um, but this, 16 is old at the time. He only lived to be like 30. <laughs> yeah, he was 55 when he was yeah. killed. So he, he had a full life. Um, so he became the head of the family during a Roman civil war fought by Caesar's uncle and Caesar's uncle's rival, um, Lucius Cornelius Sulla. And they were both like trying to have power of the Republic. And during the Civil War, Caesar was nominated to become the Flamen Dalius, which was the high priest of Jupiter, which is the highest priest in the Roman religion. Mm-hmm. Sadly, Caesar's uncle did not win the Civil War, and therefore Caesar was stripped of his inheritance, his wife's dowry, and his priesthood. But thankfully, Caesar's mother was friends with the victor's family, oh, and Caesar was pardoned. But he still couldn't have his priesthood back, which allowed for him to pursue a military career instead, which proved instrumental in his life and also history of civilization as we know it. Wow. So. Butterfly effect. Right? Can you believe? Um, So if he had remained a priest, for whatever reason, he would have been forbidden to join the military because the high priest of Jupiter was not allowed to touch a horse, sleep for three nights outside of his own bed, or one night outside of Rome, or look upon an army. (laughs) You can't even look? No. You cannot even look. Do Wait. not, do not look. I told you not to look. Don't I, you dare. He can't touch a horse. I feel like, I, like now that'd be easy, but at the time, I feel like horses were <laughs> everywhere. Well, if you're a priest, you gotta, they gotta take everything away from you, yeah, basically. Yeah, what the heck? Yeah. So anyway, he was not a priest. He pursued a military career, and his very first political office was that of a military tribune, which were usually young men in their 20s aspiring to be in the Senate, um, and they would be assigned to command a portion of the Roman army, but were still subordinate to the senators. Um, in 63 BC, he ran for election for a post called Pontifex Maximus, which was a chief priest of the Roman state religion and won, even though he was against two powerful and experienced senators. Um, 62 BC, he was appointed proprietor of Hispania Ulterior, which was basically what is now southernish Spain, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he was appointed to this position of proprietor, it was basically an extended military campaign where he conquered local tribes and his troops hailed him as a commander, although he was not legally considered a commander because that was like a voted position mm-hmm. or like a gifted like rank position. Um, why am I going through these things? Because uh, I was going to say Hitler. Oh, my God. <laughs> Whoa. Caesar was is known for his political career and like, it was his political career that eventually led to his assassination. Yeah. Um, okay. So in 60 BC, he was given the title of commander, that that honorary title, but he decided to step aside from that title in order to stand election for consulship. Consulship is the most senior magistracy position in the Republic, so part of the Senate. Um, and this was very important to Caesar. He often compared himself to Alexander the Great, mm-hmm. who at an earlier age, achieved much more than Caesar had. And so Caesar, like, was constantly comparing himself to that. Dude, that's like us and Paolo Pascal. I know, right? <laughs> Paolo! Um, so he he decided that, like, even though he was given this, like, honorary title of the commander of the Roman troops, he was like, no, I want to be in the highest position in the Roman Senate. And that's why he ran for consulship. So each year, the citizens of Rome elect two consuls to serve jointly in a one-year term, and they had civil and military responsibilities. Mm -hmm. If you were inside the walls of Rome, basically they were the head of the government, and other tribunes and plebeians were subordinate to them. If you were outside the walls of Rome, their powers were far more extensive, and they were considered the commanders-in-chief of all Roman legions, so their armies. An example, so within the city, within the city, a consul could punish and arrest a citizen, but had no power to inflict capital punishment. When on campaign, however, a consul could inflict any punishment he saw fit on any soldier, officer, citizen, or ally. Oh, no. So that's like the difference. That's so much power. Yes, which is what Caesar really wanted. So in 60 BC, Caesar gave up his honorary title of commander and round for consul, which he won. Um, and after he won this election, he formed what is known as the First Triumvirate with Pompey and Crassus. Pompey was a wealthy military and political leader, and Crassus was a general and politician considered the richest man in Rome. Mm. That's exactly the type of ally that you want. want. Yeah. Um, this ally is, is, alliance is important because they were called the three-headed beast or the three-headed monster. Um, the constitution of the Roman Republic 
was like a complex set of checks and balances similar to like how we have ours Mm -hmm. designed to prevent any one man from rising above the rest and creating a monarchy. They were really, really afraid of like a monarchy starting. Um, In order to bypass these, Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus forged a secret alliance in which they promised to use their respective influence to help each other without telling other people. One of the things they wanted to do was get a law approved that redistributed lands to the poor. Um, But eventually, because all the Senate hated this idea. They had to go public with their alliance mm-hmm. um, and, and filled the city with their armed guards and basically held the city hostage until the Senate was like, fine, you can have this fucking legislation. What babies. Right. So anyway, that's like a very, very quick rundown of the first triumvirate, which is hugely <laughs> important to the Roman political landscape of the time. But we're going to move on to Caesar's conquests of Gaul. And again, I'm not going to go into detail here because it's cuckoo bananas, but um, this is a period of time where Caesar Caesar waged several military campaigns against Gaelic tribes, which were present-day France, Luxembourg, Belgium, Switzerland, Northern Italy, Netherlands, and Germany, mm-hmm. okay? And although Caesar said that this was like these military campaigns were preemptive and defensive, a lot of political, like historical people think it was just to further his political career and to pay off massive debts, which Caesar was constantly in debt because when he was stripped of his inheritance like really early on in our story, as you Mm -hmm. might remember. So it was during the Gaelic Wars that Caesar crossed the Rhine and also crossed the English Channel to invade Britain. That's why if like you go to England, you will see a lot of like Roman influence in a lot of things. I know both Grace and I have been to Bath and they have like the the Roman baths. The Roman baths, which at the time when Caesar invaded was called Aqua Sulis, meaning water of Sulis. Sulis being the Roman version of Minerva, goddess of wisdom. Anyway, if you want a full history on the Gaelic Wars or just more information about <laughs> Caesar, listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, episode 60, The Celtic Holocaust. Very good. Ooh. Yeah. I have listened to it. It's like six or seven hours long, but worth it, and you get a lot more information than what I'm telling you. Anyway, so the achievements of the Gaelic Wars granted him unmatched military power and threatened to eclipse the standing of Pompey, who had left the triumvirate after the death of Crassus. So basically the triumvirate, Pompey was like, fuck you to Caesar after the Gallic Wars and Crassus was dead. So now it was no longer a three-headed beast. It was a one-headed beast headed by Caesar himself. (laughs) So with the Gallic Wars concluded, the Senate ordered Caesar to step down from his military command and return to Rome. So leaving his command meant losing his immunity from being charged as a criminal for waging unsanctioned wars. So that's like another thing. These were not like sanctioned wars. Like I said, he... He said that they were preemptive and defensive, meaning, like, they were not necessarily, like, it's not like these Gaelic tribes were, like, coming at them and attacking them or had instigated a moment for them to... He was, like, preemptively protecting himself. Exactly. And they were like, dude, we haven't even done anything Right. And so, like, Gaelic tribes had, would occasionally, like, raid Roman things. Yeah, but everyone was doing that back then. Exactly. (laughs) So, but that's why people think Caesar was doing it just for, like, his political advantage. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, the Senate was like, come home. And Caesar was like, I really don't want to come home. But he had to because they were ordering him to. Um, and Caesar ended up finding himself with no other options but to cross the Rubicon, which is a river, with the 13th Legion in 49 BC, leaving his province and illegally enter, entering Roman Italy under arms. So when he was told to come back to Rome by the Senate, he was explicitly ordered by the Senate to not bring his army across the Rubicon River. But he did it anyway. Yeah, and the he didn't Senate, care. Yeah, he didn't care. The Senate considered this insurrection, treason, and a declaration of war in the Roman Senate. According to some authors, Caesar is said to have uttered the phrase, Alia iacta est, the die is cast, as his army marched through the shallow river. And today, the phrase, quote, crossing the Rubicon is a metaphor that re- means no, like, the point of no return. Oh, I've never used that metaphor personally. <laughs> have you heard it before? Like crossing the Rubicon, I've heard that before. I probably have heard it, but had no idea what it meant. So yeah. I was just like, okay. <laughs> right. And the Rubicon is such a freaking awesome name. It sounds so like mythical in a way. Yeah. It's just a fucking shallow river. Like literally look at pictures of this thing. It's just a river. It's more of a creek. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, so he crossed the river. He brought his army. The Senate was like, this is war. And so then it was war. It became Caesar's civil war. Oh, um, man. Can Am you right? believe? 
Anyway, Caesar won the war, um, which gave him like an unrivaled position of power influence in Rome. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after this period of time, he began programs of social and governmental reforms, including the creation of the Julian calendar, LOL, which is like named after him. Um, And this was replaced by the Gregorian calendar, which is what we use today. Mm -hmm. Um, He also gave citizenship to many residents um, in various regions of the Roman Empire. He initiated land reform and support for veterans, and he centralized the bureaucracy of the Republic and was eventually proclaimed, quote, dictator for life in Latin, dictator Perpetuo in 44 BC. Mm. Yes. So there's two historians, Cassio Dio and Suetonius, um, and they were writing 150 to 200 years later. Um, in their histories, they're suggesting that Caesar didn't want to be called dictator. Yeah. He didn't want to be called king. He didn't want to be like in charge. And they're saying that the Senate presented Caesar with these titles, these mm-hmm. and they're calling them honorary titles. And when Caesar was told, he like balked at that. Like he did not want it and he was like very upset about it. Um, and there's an example of when Caesar was coming home from, coming into Rome and there was a huge crowd to greet him. Um, and people were laying laurels and wreaths at Caesar's feet and at a statue of Caesar. Um, he didn't want that, and people were calling him Rex from the crowd, Rex meaning king. Mm-hmm. Um, and Caesar's reply to this was, Ego Caesar non Rex. I am Caesar, not Rex. So I am Caesar, not king. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't know. I really don't know anything about Cassius Dio or Suetonius. Yeah, but I thought Caesar wanted power, so all of a sudden think, now he's shy about it. Right. I think... And again, I really don't know much. I'm just like, from what I could find on the internet, it seems like these historians 150 to 200 years later, during the Roman Empire, were writing about the, one of the first Roman emperors. Yeah. Or writing about him more So positively. they're trying to make him seem more humble. Yeah. That's the kind of vibe I was getting. But if there's any Roman histories, historians out there who would like to correct to this, us. They're probably listening to this like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, they're like, wow, <laughs> fake news. Anyway, um... So Caesar continually strove for more power Mm -hmm. to govern with as little dependence as possible on the Senate, but too bad at the end of the day, formal power still resided with the Senate, resulting in tension with Caesar. And so even, like, regardless, he was still trying to, like, change lots of legislation and, like, all of these populist-type things that he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, many senators of the conservative faction feared that Caesar wanted to overthrow the Republic and establish a monarchy. Again, I said they're afraid of this whole, like, monarchy because that was ancient Rome. Rex is what they keep calling Caesar, you know? And so they decided to save the Republic by killing Caesar. Brutus began to to conspire against Caesar with his friend and brother-in-law, Gaius Cassius Longinus, and other men, calling themselves the Liberators. Many plans were discussed by the group, and then so Nicholas uh, of Damascus wrote this, quote, The conspirators never met exactly openly, but they assembled a few at a time in each other's homes. There were many discussions and proposals, as might be expected, while they investigated how they were to execute their design. Some suggested that they should make an attempt along the sacred way, which is one of Caesar's favorite walks. Another idea was to do it at the elections, during which he had to cross a bridge to appoint the magistrates in the campus martis. Someone proposed that they draw lots for some to push him from the bridge and others to run up and kill him. A third plan was to wait for a coming gladiatorial show. The advantage of that was because of the show, no suspicion would be aroused if arms were seen. The majority opinion, however, favored killing him while he sat in the Senate. He would be there by himself since only senators were admitted and the conspirators could hide their daggers beneath their yogas. This plan won the day. Beneath their togas? Yes. You said yogas. Did I say yogas? Yeah. Their togas. (laughs) Beneath their yoga mats. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's what they do in the Senate. (laughs) Um... So in the days leading up to the assassination, Caesar was told by doctors, friends, and even his wife Calpurnia not to attend the Senate on the Ides for various reasons, including rumors, medical concerns, and troubling dreams Calpurnia had. You know rumors were going around. Oh, yes. People have nothing else to talk about. You just wait. Hold on. Two days before the actual assassination, Cassius met with the conspirators and told them that should anyone discover their plan, they were to turn their knives on themselves. Suicide. (gasps) I know. 
on the Ides of March, 44 BC, it, 44 BC, a day used by the Romans as a deadline for settling debts, the conspirators staged a game of gladiatorial sport at the theater of Pompeii. The gladiators were provided by Brutus in case their services were needed. They waited in the great hall of the theater's quadriportico. Caesar was late, having received several warnings in the previous days. <laughs> Therefore, Brutus was sent to fetch him and managed to persuade Caesar to attend so as not to disappoint the Senate. Mark Antony... Having vaguely learned of the, <laughs> the plot, singer. <laughs> <laughs> having vaguely learned of the plot the night before from a terrified liberator named Servilius Casca, Our Casca friend. told Mark Antony um, when he was afraid. So he's a big old friggin' baby. If you're gonna overthrow someone, don't get yeah. cold feet. I'm not necessarily saying that anybody should stage a coup d'état, but if you're gonna do it, commit. Yeah, I mean, to it. commit anyway. So Casca told Mark Antony, and Mark Antony, um, so Mark Antony was planning to go tell Caesar, but the plotters had kind of anticipated that Casca was going to get cold feet, and so they um, found Mark Antony and like found ways to like not get him to go to the theater of Pompeii where the session was held. Um, although Mark Antony did eventually like arrive, and he heard the commotion inside. Yeah. And he fled. He was like, oh, so oh he shit. Was like, he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> Gotta go. <clears throat> um, I tried. So as Caesar arrived to the Senate, um, Lucius Tilius Kimber presented him with a petition to recall his exiled brother. The other conspirators crowded round to offer their support. Wow. Fake. Caesar waved him away, but Kimber grabbed Caesar's shoulders and pulled down Caesar's toga. <gasps> Caesar then cried to Kimber. Why this violence? Ista quidam this est. At the same time, Casca produced his dagger and thrust it at the dictator's neck. Casca turned, or Caesar turned around quickly and caught Casca by the arm and said in Latin, Casca, you villain, what are you doing? Casca, frightened, shouted, help, brother, in Greek. Within moment, the entire group, including Brutus, were stabbing the dictator. Caesar attempted to get away, but blinded by blood in his eyes, he tripped and fell. The men continued stabbing him as he lay defenseless on the lower steps of the portico. According to Eutropius, who's a Roman historian, 60 or more men participated in the assassination, and Caesar was stabbed 23 times. Uh, and then a physician performed an autopsy on Caesar, established that only one wound, the second one to his chest that pierced his aorta, had been fatal. Um, and it suggests that Caesar's death was mostly attributable to blood loss from his stab wounds. Mm -hmm. um, and despite the death of Caesar, the conspirators were unable to restore the institutions of the Republic and the ramifications of the assassinations led to the Liberator's civil war and ultimately to the last period of the Roman Empire. So it kind of didn't do anything. It didn't do anything. It didn't work. But it became one of the most famous assassinations. Well, when does he say, you too, Brutus? Hold on. Here we All go. Right. So what were Caesar's last words? Caesar's last words are a contested subject among scholars and historians, of course. Suetonius says that Caesar said nothing, although he mentions that others have written that Caesar's last words were the Greek phrase transliterated as kaisu technon, which means you too, child, in English. Mm -hmm. um, Plutarch, who is like another historian, also reports that Caesar said nothing, pulling his toga over his head when he saw Brutus among the conspirators. Um, the version best known to English-speaking world is the Latin phrase, et tu Brute, or you too, Brutus. Um, and this is crossword ease, right? The et tu. We yeah. see it all the time. Um, and this comes from William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar from 1599, oh. where it actually forms the first half of a line at two brute then fall caesar how do you spell it two et space t u okay um and this line at two brute then fall caesar has no basis of historical fact so it's just shakespeare who made us yes. think that that's yes i know anyway so i'm going to end on a very important quote okay from gretchen wiener <laughs> why should caesar get to stomp around like a giant while the rest of us try not to get smushed under his big feet What's so great about Caesar, hmm? Brutus is just as cute as Caesar. Brutus is just as smart as Caesar. People totally like Brutus as much as they like Caesar. And when did it become okay for one person to be the boss of everybody, huh? Because that's not what Rome is about. We should totally just stab Caesar. Thanks. That's very, that's summed up very nicely. Thank you. And so, uh. That's that. That's that and a bag of chips. 
I hope you could stick with us through that lovely historical episode. Yeah, now you're just a little bit smarter. Drop that in, like, casual conversation and people will think you're cool. Yeah, we should just... Unless you're friends with, like, scholars, then they'll be like, yeah, we know, you <laughs> idiot. But if you're friends with... <laughs> if you're friends with us... Yeah. We'll think you're cool. Yeah. So... So that's it. That's that. Please like and review our podcast yes. if you liked it. If you didn't um, like it. If you didn't like it, you can still review it. But, but don't give us one star. Give us five. I mean, just do something nice. Yeah. You know, what is the, the give given back thing? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> when you give back, the... um. I don't know what you're saying. Give it forward. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. Oh, man. That was rough. Um, yeah. <laughs> so do that and follow us on Twitter. Yes. We are... The Good Eve Girls. We are, and we're the Good Evening Girls on Instagram. If and you we, want to see a picture of me as a young child wearing giant shorts at the Statue of Liberty, then... Yes. We do lots of fun things on our Instagram that we don't do on Twitter, so yeah. pop on over, see what we got. You might like it, you might not, but again, just leave us that review. <laughs> That's all we care about. <laughs> um, all right, well, until next time. Until next time, I'm Chelsea. I'm Grace. And we're the Good Evening Girls. Bye. Bye. Bye.